This is an ABC podcast. Nikolai Bailharts with you for the Country Hour. On the program today, maybe I don't need to tell you, but it's interesting news. Victorian hay is becoming increasingly hard for drought-stricken farmers to find unless they've got rather deep pockets. That's, of course, because there are big prices for feed around at the moment. Interestingly, the huge demand has even led to some exporters now looking back on domestic shores. So instead of sending the, the stock offshore... They are sending it domestically because they can get higher prices there. So we'll try and find out how long these high prices may last. Also on the program today, an anaesthetic that was originally brought into Australia to help sheep producers with mulesing is now being used in cattle too. And the animal welfare group, the RSPCA, is now backing that move. We'll find out why. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. We start today, though, with sheep, and after months and months of wool records being smashed once again and again and again, it seems now the meat side of the industry is having its turn. New records are being set at a number of sale yards and are edging ever closer to the $300 a head mark. There was a new national record of $292 a head set at Tamworth yesterday. Scott Tolmey from Meat and Livestock Australia says that these high prices may end up pushing up prices for the Sunday lamb roast as well. Yeah, well, we've seen uh, the lamb trade indicator just continue to smash records over the last couple of weeks. Uh, in fact, yesterday the daily indicator got up to 780 cents carcass weight, uh, which, you know, to give you some context, it's never been above 700 cents before this year. So similar to, like you are saying, the wool industry, uh, the lamb one, the meat market, they're starting to smash some records. And records too, I gather, at some sale yards, including Tamworth? Yeah, we actually got a, a new national record yesterday at $292 uh, for a, a pen of lambs that were about 38 kilos carcass weight at Tamworth. So what's driving these high prices? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting balance between supply and demand at the moment. Um, there's some really strong demand uh, internationally for our product, and essentially it's our supply at the moment can't keep up, particularly around the kind of finished and, and heavy lamb end of the market. Um, yeah, we've seen some dry conditions, and there was probably quite abundant supply early on in the year, um, and prices were quite resilient. But in the last couple of months, we, we've seen that tighten up, and, and that's when it's really lit a fire under prices. Okay, so what kind of countries are leading the charge when it comes to exports? Well, the good news for us, it's, it's all our major destinations. You know, the Middle East, China and US are all up between 10 and 30% in terms of their export demand. And the, and the really positive thing for us is they're, they're taking more volume, but they're also um, paying a higher price at um, Australian dollar per kilo for these. So it really kind of highlights the strong demand in some of these markets. Uh, what about the domestic side of things? Is demand growing there? Uh, it's been resilient. Um, obviously, with some of these uh, prices coming through, uh, it, it does take some of the shine off the domestic market. But so far, they've been quite resilient, and we've seen absolute consumption being reasonably stable over the last uh, few years, despite the increases in prices. Okay. Uh, what kind of effect is the weather having on things? Because I imagine with uh, dry in a lot of areas, that could lead to people wanting to destock or reduce their numbers a bit. 
Yeah, and it's definitely happened so far this year. You know, some major parts of Australia are facing really dry and drought conditions. Uh, and what we're kind of seeing at the moment is a lot of people having to do supplementary feeding and, and feed costs are really high at the moment. So these high prices are really welcomed by a lot of producers who are spending a lot of money on feed. Um, and it's good to see they're kind of getting some returns to help keep them above water. Well, on that note, it was interesting. I remember seeing on Twitter, I can't remember who, who said it, but uh, that, that kind of line of questioning whether record prices means record profits. So maybe there is a bit of a, a sheen being taken off there. Yeah, at this stage, you wouldn't say that uh, necessarily record profits are being driven across the industry because of the dry conditions. And like I mentioned, things like feed costs um, really raising the input. Um, input costs for a lot of producers. So they're obviously happy with some of the record prices, but many are still doing it tough. What does this mean for consumers who may be thinking, okay, well, if we're seeing big prices at the sale yards, does that necessarily mean uh, consumers should be thinking lamb prices will be going up? Look, we definitely see a correlation between um, the prices at sale yards and what ends up on the retail shelves. But there's lots of commercial players uh, throughout the supply chain that kind of make their own commercial decisions and that can influence prices. So they don't always move uh, with the same intensity or same direction. Um, but it is reasonably likely that some of the recent increases might kind of flow through to what's on shelf. And I guess the, the obvious question to finish on that a lot of people want to know the answer to is, are these high prices going to last? Yeah, it's really hard to gauge. Um, they've definitely, it's a bit worrying how quickly and how high they've shot up. And, and generally after this, we these kind of rises, we see a certain level of stabilisation and it settle uh, potentially to a new a, a new base. Um, typically, we see prices peak around June, July um, before they kind of start to settle again with a spring flush. But this year, it's kind of shaping up quite differently and there's still a big question mark on the number and supply of slaughter-ready lambs coming um, through. So... Uh, it's, a, it's going to be an interesting one to watch, uh, particularly if it does actually rain in, in some parts of Australia. Indeed, that's Scott Tolmey, his Market Intelligence Manager with Meat and Livestock Australia. I'd be keen to know from you if we do start to see lamb prices rising a little bit, are you willing to accept a bit of a price rise or are you already at the point where if those prices go up, you need to start looking elsewhere? 0467 842 722 is the text number. 0467 842 722. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, sticking with sheep but moving from food to fibre, more than 50 years after getting a start in farming, George McKenzie has now claimed one of the sheep industry's top honours. George McKenzie and his wife Helen own the Montrose Hill Merino Stud at Illabrook, south of Ballarat, and one of their prize ewes was named the Supreme Merino Exhibit at the Australian Sheep and Wool Show, which was held in Bendigo over the weekend. Mr McKenzie says despite a few setbacks over the years, the wool industry is one that he is glad to be a part of. We've been showing sheep for over 30 years, and uh, we've got to the final pinnacle about three or four times in that time, and um, fell at the last hurdle, you might say. To get over the line, it's sort of a, it's a bit of a blur for that five minutes after it. But you know, very excited. Helen and I were both beside ourselves. Actually, we just work together on it all the time. And with the help of outside labour, we've got a young apprentice on the property these days, uh, Matthew Brio. And you know, we've all all been part of it. We all share it. How long have you been in the industry for? And how long has the stud been running for? Dad had passed away 35 years ago. That's quite a young age. But Dad helped me start it off. He bought 25 ewes for me in 1967 when I left school at 16 and um, 
We've built it up slowly over those times. We've had a couple of hits with it. We lost a huge part of the stud in 1983 on the break of the 83 drought in a flood on a creek flat. We had about 140 years drowned, actually, at the time, which was a real disaster at the time. But anyway, we rebuilt our numbers, and uh, we're breeding from about 900 stud ewes at present. Now, getting back to your supreme ewe, uh, obviously she's an impressive animal. Did you think that she'd, she'd be up to the challenge of taking out the prize? Oh, Matt and I were doing some trimming the other day, and um, I quietly said to Matt, I said, you know, it's going to take a good ewe to beat her. That was her fifth showing, and she hasn't been beaten. So, you know, we knew we had a little bit of a chance. What are her attributes that make her such an impressive animal? It's just her her outside appearance. You know, she's, she sells herself up to a point and um, got a great bonnet and new head on her. And, and her wool, well, when you go down through her underline, her, her belly is as good as what's on, a, on the top line, actually. And, um, you know, she's faultless in the wool. And I think even she'll have a great show fleece on her. That'll weigh reasonably well for her micron because she came in at 15.5, her micron was. So, you know, she's very much the finer edge of the, the industry. When did you first pick her out and recognise that she did stand out above the rest? Well, actually, it was a crutching time last year. We had the crutches inside and um, everybody else was inside working in the shed and I was out the back actually drenching and um, she came down the race in amongst 650 maiden ewes and um, she had a head up then. She stood out and said, you know, that I'm a little bit better than the rest then and uh, went to open the fleece up and uh, to see the wool she had on her. It was just fantastic. And what's the plan now? Will she be showed again shortly? She's uh, come off the ultrasound six weeks ago, Angus with twins, actually. She's going to lamb to twins, and um, she got a bit of feed sickness at Bendigo, and we were a bit worried about her, and uh, we've had her on a couple of injections this morning, actually, and um, we won't be taking her to Ballarat and Hamilton. We'll just wait for Dubbo now. She's got to go for the National U Championship at Dubbo against Australia, so that's her last hurrah, and then she'll be home in the paddock. What do you think a win like this will do for your business, your start and your reputation? At the end of the day, you know, you've, you know, people, they're not going to change their breeding policies because I've won a, a major ribbon. But the biggest problem we're facing at present is just the ewe population, Angus. We, the ewes are just not there. And the good merino ewes that are going for terminal size, even with the wool industry in such good order, it's just quite staggering, actually. It's, it's a matter of the industry's got to concrete itself in again with more ewe numbers and um, merino to merino joinings. You know, to see what's happening in the wool industry right now, well, we just finished shearing in June and uh, sold the wool more or less straight away. And, you know, we had an average micron of 17 and the, the breeding ewes cut it just on $100. To me, that is just a magic magic number when you can see surplus sheep sales and wool, wool prices like that. And it's still not swinging people towards merino. So we're still a long way off being successful in the merino industry. But if people don't snap out of it and start breeding merino to merino joinings, it's unsustainable at present. If the wool price does stay so high, do you think that's going to start changing and do you think you will see more merino to merino joinings? I'm hoping so, but you've got to be able to find the use. To go out there and if you want to buy a one-mark run of anywhere from 500 to 1,000 use, I don't know whether you'd find, where you'd find them. Apart from that lack of use, you must feel very positive about the wool industry. Oh, look, I've never felt any different, actually, Angus. When you get wool and meat selling so well, you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And I suppose for yourself, at least, the payoffs come all at once with high wool prices and, of course, winning this award at the same time. Well, that's very much so. Well, it's just uh, one of those um, happy moments in your life, I suppose. It's it's not about show ribbons. It's about, you know, breeding good sheep that'll breed on. That's what it's all about. You know, it's 
we're just a family operation and um, my mother and father worked hard. Dad was in the services you know, through the war in the Air Force and saw very active service and, um, you know, in 1947, 1948 they started out and um, Helen and I have come along into the fold and, you know, it's uh, very much still a family-run industry and uh, I'm quite proud to be part of that. That is Marino breeder George McKenzie speaking there with Angus Furley. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, it is 17 minutes past 12. My name's Nikolai Bailharts. Now, it's not just the use of the term milk that dairy farmers in the US want enforced by the nation's food regulator. This is something we were discussing on the program yesterday. Well, it turns out the dairy lobby group, the National Milk Producers Federation, which is the big one in the US, is demanding that the Food and Drug Administration also cracks down on other words, things like butter, ice cream, cheese and yoghurt when it comes to plant-based dairy substitutes. But the US Milk Group spokesman, Chris Galen, says they are encouraged by comments made by FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb that the Trump administration would start enforcing some of these regulations that define milk as an animal product. Chris Galen spoke with our reporter, Kim Honan. We have more hope than we had a week ago, but we also have to temper our enthusiasm with the realisation that even if the FDA does decide to take action, it's not going to be a quick or easy process. The commissioner noted that it will take time, at least a year, and I think he's also correct that there may be some legal challenges for those who prefer to see the status quo of the FDA not stepping in to take action on this issue. Okay, because the the plant-based milk industry in the United States is big business now. Certainly the plant-based business is a lot bigger than it was five years ago and much bigger than 10 or 20 years ago when our organization was first working on this. It's also worth pointing out that they have common cause with uh, the animal rights community, which is a very active group in this country. I suspect it is also down under in Oceania, and these folks work together uh, in many cases to uh, to define markets for uh, a growing number of these imitation plant-based products that mimic milk. So how long has your organisation been lobbying the FDA to enforce the federal standard definition of milk? I would say our modern efforts, our 21st century efforts, go back to February of 2000 when we sent a letter to the Food and Drug Administration complaining about the misuse or misappropriation of dairy terms. And back then, the, the primary offender was soy milk. And our concern at that time was that if the FDA did did do nothing, took no steps against the makers of soy milk, we would see a proliferation of other plant products also co-opt dairy terms like milk, but also things like yogurt and cheese and butter and ice cream. And sure enough, here in the intervening 18 years, we've now seen an explosion of plant products displaying the term milk. I don't know how many of them are sold uh, in Australia, but we also see here hemp, uh, quinoa. Uh, we have uh, bananas and potatoes, as well as more common products like almonds and soy and rice. Is there any evidence, though, that the dairy industry is losing market share in the milk space to plant-based milk products like those you just listed? One of the hard things to tease out is that the decline in cow's milk consumption is certainly a real trend, but it predates, it's been going on longer than the appearance 
uh, and popularization of these imitators. So we can see a decline in per capita milk consumption that goes back to the 1970s. All right, and the rise of the soy and later the almond and other plant-based imitators really has been in the last 10 or 20 years. So has there been some shift in consumption away from real milk to some of the fake milks? Uh, Certainly that's true, but I'm sure there are some people who wouldn't consume cow's milk anyway that are consuming the plant-based products. We recognize the fact that these products certainly have a right to exist and that there are people who for ideological reasons or religious reasons or dietary reasons don't want to consume cow's milk but prefer a plant-based imitator. So all we're asking our government to do is make certain that these imitation products market themselves properly. And interestingly enough, if I can get into this, Kim, the U.S. has the same regulations that we see in the European Union and the United Kingdom and Canada. The difference is that those countries enforce those regulations. In the U.S., those regulations are not enforced. And I will confess as to not being 100% certain what the laws are there in Australia or New Zealand. But certainly when you look at the Western or Northern Hemisphere, we see many other English-speaking countries as well as those in the European Union prohibiting the use of terms like milk on their products. And yet, those same products are still being sold in Canada and the UK and Europe. They're just not called milk uh, when, when they're sold in those countries. Well, I can say the uh, dairy industry here in Australia is certainly watching the news out of the US uh, very closely because the uh, food standard uh, definition of milk here is very similar to yours. Yes, and, and I don't know if the standards is such that your food safety agency uh, feels compelled to enforce them. Our our concern simply is that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has been asleep at a switch for many, many years. And that uh, was something that the commissioner, uh, Commissioner Gottlieb, basically acknowledged last week in his public comments. He said, we do have a standard. We've exercised what he calls enforcement discretion. So it's like a policeman turning a blind eye when someone's speeding or uh, or perhaps even more nefarious crimes than that, from our perspective, uh, the FDA has essentially not policed these terms. And sure enough, we've seen a growing number of products misusing them in violation of our standards. Chris Galen from the National Milk Producers Federation in Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. He was speaking there with our reporter, Kim Honan. There's still plenty to come on the Country Hour. Dehorning cattle is a pretty big animal welfare issue. Well, later on in the program, we'll hear more about the latest moves by the industry, which the RSPCA has backed. Certainly what we're aiming for is, in the long run, not to have to cut bits off animals at all. And if we can start by introducing polled animals, that would be great. More on that soon. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. 23 minutes past 12. Well, the banks have been in the headlines for a long time now. Well, now the National Australia Bank has bowed to pressure from the public, customers and the government and says it will be improving its lending practices when it comes to the agribusiness sector. The bank's CEO, Andrew Thorburn, hit the road this week to meet with clients in rural New South Wales. Lauren Pazette spoke with him at a grain storage depot near Wagga. At the Banking Royal Commission a couple of weeks ago, the National Australia Bank said its policy of charging drought-affected farmers penalties for missed repayments met community expectations. But speaking at Mara in the New South Wales Riverina, the CEO of NAB, Andrew Thorburn, said those practices are going to change. For 
agri clients who are in drought affected areas in the country that we will no longer charge a default interest rate so that if they get into arrears they're already going through difficult times we're not going to increase that interest rate uh, further obviously they're going through financial stress and emotional stress so we're going to stop that and i think that's a, another leadership position we can take nab will also offer their agri customers the ability to offset their farm management deposit against their agricultural lending a move that agriculture minister david littleproud had been calling for Mr Thorburn announced his bank's policy changes after visiting the Riverina to meet face-to-face with agribusiness clients. And is this effectively an apology tour, given the way that the banks have treated the farmers so poorly, as we've heard in the Royal Commission? Well, we have been banking Australian farmers for 160 years, and I think with the one-third market share today and the feedback we get about our our agri-bankers and we've got 500 agri-bankers around Australia. I've met one of them today, Mick, does a wonderful job and we've just taken another 50 graduates, uh, agri-graduates. So I think we do a lot of things right but clearly with a business our size and some of the things as you say coming out of the Royal Commission we need to reflect on that and we need to change and learn. So we want to get better and we want to own up to issues and we want to make it better for clients and I think this is part of it. Will you be doing anything to help farmers out retrospectively who have already been through a lot? Well, on the offset accounts, we'll do that. Uh, We'll write to our clients uh, now and we'll start, as soon as they nominate the account, we will start to get that underway for them. And on default interest rates, look, one of the challenges is what's, let's do something that's immediate and forward-looking. So, you know, we'll continue to review this, but in relation to the default interest rates, that will be from now for today for those clients who are affected. And do you see the farming sector as a business opportunity for the NAB, given that home loans in the cities are start, look like they're starting to drop off? Oh, look, farming and agri clients has been a really important part of our whole business for 160 years. And uh, it's just a business that's continued to grow and expand. It's a very big export earner for Australia. We should be proud of it. And when you meet uh, many of our farming clients, you know, they are people... Uh, and businesses that are bold and that we keep backing and you know they've got very successful businesses and we're we're very pleased to be part of it at the same time though because we're a broad bank business loans and corporate loans and uh, also uh, home loans are really important so it's not about one's more important than the other they're all important but I, I certainly think with our heritage and market position agri rural regional Australia is really important to us in terms of what you are announcing today, is this really just um, getting on the front foot for what you think you'll be forced to do anyway as an outcome of the Royal Commission? Look, we have to manage our business for the long term. We've always done that and I think we must do that in the future. And there's no doubt the Royal Commission's providing some pretty sad, um, unfortunate cases that we have to take accountability for. It is a Royal Commission into misconduct, so we're going to unfortunately see that. But also, when we step back from it, there's a lot of our... Ban- oh, almost all of our bankers and our clients we're doing really good things for that we can be very proud of. Uh, Clients that I've visited today that speak highly of their banker and what the bank has done. So yes, we have to own these issues and make change from them. There's no doubt about that. But also we need to keep it in perspective that many of the things we're doing and our staff are doing are wonderful things to help clients. That is the CEO of the National Australia Bank, Andrew Thorburn, speaking there with Lauren Bazette. 28 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. My name's Nikolai Bailharts. We noticed some interesting science news. Hospital data from as far back as the 1930s has confirmed a link between animals and humans 
in the spread of antibiotic resistance. Now, while in Australia the problem is more likely to be an issue of people interacting with their pets, in other countries it is intensive agriculture that seems to be to blame. Jess Davis spoke with Associate Professor Stephen Tong from the University of Melbourne's Infectious Diseases Unit, who contributed to this international study which looked at samples of the common bacteria Golden Staph. We know across a lot of different studies that antibiotics used in uh, livestock management uh, can lead to the emergence of resistance in the bacteria that infect those, those livestock. This is a specific example with golden staff, uh, where in chickens, um, cows and pigs uh, there have been instances where the use of antibiotics has generated resistance um, and these clones can then spread back into the human population. Can you explain how that works for someone who doesn't understand infections? Sure, so it's all about uh, selective pressure, so evolution. Um, if you um, provide a whole bunch of antibiotics to animals or humans and they have bacteria on them, the ones which survive will be those that are resistant to those antibiotics. So if um, a cow has golden staph and it's given a whole bunch of antibiotics, then the golden staff that survives will be those that are resistant to those antibiotics. So the use of overuse of antibiotics will ultimately drive antibiotic resistance. Do humans then become antibiotic resistant through eating the meat or through transference of infections from animal to human? So in this paper demonstrates that it goes both ways. There's both transmission from humans to animals and then also back from animals to humans. And with Staph aureus, so this germ in particular, it's more a skin-to-skin pathogen, so it's mainly by contact, not so much by eating. So we shouldn't be worried about eating the meat itself. It's more about the, the evolution of those animals that we're eating. That, that's correct. So, so an example would be in the Netherlands, uh, there were pig farms where there were lots of these infections in the pigs, and it was the farmers... Um, and the farmers' families that tended to get these infections. So this study, you mentioned the Netherlands, did they look at other places around the world? So over 800 Staph aureus isolates uh, collected across the five continents, I think it was 50 countries or so, so it was a very big data set, uh, and looking for, kind of, I guess, global patterns of this. So I've given examples in the Netherlands, but there certainly were other countries involved, and a lot of these were kind of multiple country um, spread of these resistant pathogens. Uh, but it's probably the largest study of this kind for golden staff that's been done so far. So people have looked into specific, I guess, types of golden staff, so the ones in pigs or the ones in cows. This one brings all those different animal groups and human isolates together. The isolates that were involved in the study actually span from 1930 uh, to 2014, so a very long period. A lot of places have big isolate collections, um, and so you can actually dwell back into those and go back to, say, ones from the 1930s and say, hey, what did those bacteria look like? And nowadays, with DNA sequencing technology, we can go back to those isolates, sequence the DNA from those, which has remained stable over that time, and compare it to the DNA sequence of isolates from today. Australia's chief vet, Dr Mark Ship, believes both farm animals and household pets play a significant role in the spread of antibiotic resistance. In, in terms of on-farm biosecurity, it's important that uh, humans don't infect the animals. And we've seen that uh, on a number of occasions where influenzas have passed from humans uh, to the animals that they're uh, uh, caring for. And, and likewise, in the home setting, uh, we've seen it with uh, humans passing uh, resistant bacterial infections onto their pets. 
and then their pets picking up that infection and over time passing it back to the humans because they're sharing a very close environment uh, with food and uh, uh, sleeping arrangements and, and uh, living arrangements because we are in such close uh, uh, shared environment with our pets and companion animals that really are part of the family and that and that family includes uh, shared pathogens and bacterial infections. He says Australia needs to focus on how antibiotics are prescribed for people. Of all of the countries that have been tested, Australia ranks as one of the lowest users of antibiotics in, in livestock production, uh, but one of the highest in, in terms of uh, human health. So we, we over-prescribe in the human sector and, uh, and are one of the lowest users in uh, the livestock and animal agriculture sector. That is Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Mark Shipp, ending that report from Jess Davis. It's 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Time to get the latest in local news headlines now with Sian Johnson. Afternoon, Sian. Good afternoon, Nikolai. A jury has retired to consider its verdict in the trial of a man accused of murdering his friend in Gippsland. 38-year-old Darian McMillan has admitted to bashing Brett Thomas at Rosedale in February last year, but denies he intended to kill him. The Supreme Court trial has been told the attack was brutal, extremely forceful and sustained. A southwest Victorian woman was taken to hospital last night after a carport collapsed on her in high winds. The incident occurred in Black Street, Black Street Tarang, just before 6 o'clock yesterday evening. The woman in her 50s suffered head and shoulder injuries and is in a stable condition. Delays are continuing on the Hume Freeway near Laceby following a truck rollover this morning. Southbound lanes remain closed between Greta Road and Glen Rowan, with detours in place. The male truck driver in his 40s has been taken to Wangaratta Hospital in a stable condition, with soft tissue injuries and cuts. The search continues for a driver who rammed two police vehicles in the Ballarat suburb of Delacombe, northwest of Melbourne. The driver ran off after ramming the police cars around half past one this morning. Police were investigating reports of a burglary at a car yard at the time. And a Yanak man will face Melbourne Magistrates Court today, charged with multiple firearms offences. The 63-year-old has also been charged with conduct endangering life after police interviewed him at the Alfred Hospital last night. Police were told the man shot at another man before suffering a serious head injury during the scuffle to disarm him at Yanak near Nil on Friday night. For more local news, visit abc.net.au slash news. Thank you very much. Sian Johnson there with local news headlines. Still to come on the Country Hour, as we've mentioned, hay becoming increasingly hard to find at the moment, and while that's not good news for people that do need it, has led to a rather interesting situation for those that are normally feed exporters. Apparently quite a few of them now refocusing on the domestic market because prices are so high locally. So we'll talk more about that shortly. First, though, we need to find out what's happening weather-wise. Stephen King is on duty at the Bureau of Meteorology. Afternoon, Stephen. Afternoon, Nicolai. How are things looking today? Uh, all right, well, we've got a cold front on its way. It's already reached southwestern Victoria. Um, we've had about 15 millimetres already at Cape Nelson, six at Dartmoor and five at Portland. Uh, the other concern today will be the winds picking up again ahead of that front. Uh, I guess the good news is it won't be quite as strong as last night. So we did see winds around the Melbourne area and up in the Grampians of around that sort of 100, 110 k an hour mark. Uh, today we're only expecting winds up to maybe 90 k's an hour. Um, of course the higher ones up in the Alps and some of the elevated parts. But uh, yeah, hopefully not quite as bad as yesterday and we'll see that 
uh, band of showers come through, uh, probably reach the central district this afternoon and then parts of Gippsland later on the evening. Most of the showers will be on and south of the ranges, not too much making it to the north. Um, most places getting sort of up to five millimetres, not much making it to East Gippsland, Northern Mallee. Um, what else? Those winds, yeah, once that cold front goes through this evening, uh, the showers will clear pretty quickly and the winds will ease considerably tonight. Uh, and then that should be the last we'll see of the winds uh, for a couple of days now. So looking ahead, tomorrow, uh, fairly benign kind of day. Uh, mild conditions with light to moderate westerly winds. Uh, we'll see some showers pop up in the afternoon. Um, mainly just down near the coast, but they're possible just about anywhere. Um, but nothing terribly useful in them, just the odd millimetre or two around the place. Uh, they'll clear out pretty quickly tomorrow night. And then Thursday we'll see a low pressure system develop over the bite. Uh, that'll bring some shower activity into the western third of the state uh, later on in the day. Again, not too much uh, in terms of rainfall, just a couple of millimetres here and there. Um, and then that'll probably reach maybe the central districts in the evening, probably not reaching Gippsland at all. Uh, and then Friday, Saturday, basically that low moves over New South Wales. It doesn't really bring a great deal of rainfall to either New South Wales or us. So just having a look at the totals on uh, Friday, we've only got sort of one, two millimetres, maybe slightly more up towards the Murray. Uh, and then on Saturday, same, just one or two millimetres throughout most of the state. Um, and no real reduction in the temperatures, no real increase in the wind. So it is fairly kind of state, well, not quite a stable pattern, but um, I guess... Oh, I guess what I was getting at this morning is that there's no real sort of clear fine day coming up, mm. uh, which is unfortunate for our city people, but uh, probably fortunate for the country folk out there who are hoping for some rain. But as I just mentioned, there's not a great deal of rain on the way. Um, looking into the early part of next week, we'll be back into this pattern of a couple of cold fronts coming through. So I've got cold fronts coming through Sunday and again on Tuesday, just bringing more of this sort of showery activity to southern and mountain areas. But again, looks like Gippsland probably largely missing out. Nikolai. OK, and so for people that are looking for rain, are there any areas that were likely to kind of miss everything over the course of the next week? Um, well, you can usually bet on the Mallee for that. Uh, and East Gippsland, just given that we're so westerly at the moment, um, they tend to miss out as well. There's a tiny bit of hope. Once that low moves over to the Tasman Sea... Far East Gippsland could see a little bit of uh, onshore flow, but at the moment doesn't look, uh, just because that low isn't intensifying that much, it doesn't look like bringing too much moisture onshore, unfortunately. So uh, we're just going to have to keep waiting and... Uh uh, what was I going to say? Waiting on that hay to come that you're talking about. Indeed. OK, well, we'll keep waiting. Thank you very much, Stephen. OK, welcome. Stephen King, Senior Forecaster on duty at the Bureau of Meteorology. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It's 20 minutes to one. My name is Nikolai Bailhart. So we were talking earlier on in the program about record lamb prices, but one of the things that's taking a bit of the sheen off those record prices is that a lot of farmers are having to buy in feed at the moment. 
It won't surprise you to hear that then-Victorian hay is becoming increasingly hard to find and increasingly expensive. The huge demand for fodder has even led to some exporters now selling their stock domestically rather than looking towards those offshore markets. Consultant Colin Peace from Jumbuck Ag says that while most sellers are holding their stock for long-term international customers, some just cannot resist the red-hot domestic market. There are some exporters in Victoria that have got stocks left over from the poor quality year of 2016 that is less marketable into their North Asian markets than some of the other better quality 2017 bales hay. And as has happened before in droughts previously, exporters have realised that they can get much more for their hay on the domestic market than they can internationally, so they have been selling. Hay stocks generally this year are much tighter than they were this time last year and uh, exporters have been trying to debate within themselves really, you know, what do they do? They've got some long-term customers they need to retain overseas and that's where most of them are settling at the moment. And in terms of the hay stocks that are out there still for sale, what sort of amounts do those exporters have that they'd be willing to sell domestically and also how much is left on farm that could still be sold into New South Wales? It's a bit of a cliche to say, you know, we've sold out of hay, there's nothing left to sell. There's always something on the market that someone will sell, but it just gets to the stage that as far as practicable, it is just difficult and almost impossible to buy if you are particularly buying hay at a certain price. Uh, When we were talking earlier, Colin, we were discussing the fact that uh, some hay sellers have changed their selling practices to capitalise on these high prices. Uh, but there are other people who have stayed committed to their long-standing arrangements, even if they're just informal arrangements, and they may have hay there sitting there, but they're choosing not to sell it because they have got those arrangements in place. Look, it's an interesting commodity, how hay is marketed. It's entirely different to its close cousin grain, for instance, where it's just you know the best buyer in the market generally gets the grain from one season to the next. But in hay, there are... A trade-off there big time this year between the benefit you can get from selling to absolute strangers and there are plenty of those that have the opportunity to sneak in and try to buy people's hay but most seasoned hay growers are just happy and loyal to keep the hay for their long-term customers because if they get another flood of hay as they have with um, 2016, 2010, in those years you desperately need to have clients that have stuck with you and are prepared to buy the hay that you've got and you can clear your sheds. For those farmers in New South Wales that are battling drought, how hard is it for them to try and buy hay out of Victoria at the moment? You're really buying hay well outside your area from people that you rarely buy hay from. There may be some in western New South Wales have been in this situation before and have some contacts. They've purchased hay in other droughts before, but you've got a whole range of people going from the southern tablelands through to the central west up into the northern tablelands of New South Wales, and they've never needed to buy in hay from Victoria that I can recall. So I can only imagine how tough it is for those people. And given that hay supply in Victoria is at such a low point and the season's also shaping up to be quite tough and it could well be a very low production year for hay, what's the situation going to be uh, heading into the summer and into next season? 
look, you can paint a doomsday scenario by saying if it's stopped raining now, we will be in all sorts of strife, which is absolutely true. But um, the market will always work itself out. The, the demand will need to constrict more if that's the case and the supply will increase. I think we just need to have some faith that um, Mother Nature is going to work itself out. And would you anticipate that if conditions do stay quite tough going into spring, that a lot of farmers may make the decision to cut hay when they may normally stick with a grain crop uh, just to capitalise on that hay shortage and those high prices? I think that's a really good point. And I think uh, there's a lot of broad-acre growers in Victoria and southern New South Wales who have an absolute open mind. You know, it'll come down to the relative returns of the commodities of each different type and how easy the growers believe they could offload their hay. There's always a lot of biomass around that can be uh, cut and baled and, uh, and wheat and barley crops in October are going to be an obvious one. That's farm consultant Colin Peace speaking with Angus Verley. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, sticking with broadacre crops, no-till farming is apparently facing one of its biggest challenges yet. The industry says that during dry times, the contrast between those who till and those who don't is more apparent. Victorian No-Till Farmers Association President Grant Sims says that drought is unearthing the effectiveness of low-disturbance soil management. At the current time, like the year we're having, you know, everyone's, you know, probably a below average rainfall, marginal start and and challenging. And I think when you're having a good year and a good rainfall, everything just sort of works. But it's in these times that different systems or practices show up. And and from travelling around, the guys that have been in, you know, big stubble retention, whether it be stripper stubble or or just good management of that and disc seeders and using low disturbance, the crops that they're establishing, the evenness of that compared to where we may have burnt and lost that residue and that cover, you know, you just got to look at what we do in the, in the garden and you put the mulch down to keep the moisture and the weeds away. Um, so the guys that are doing that and doing that well, it's years like this that it really shows out. So hopefully it gets a few people thinking and, um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's your farm and you've got to do what works best. The no-till concept really took off in the Wimmera, but Grant Sims says the system has spread state and nationwide. He says growers are working together, which is a good thing. We're very lucky in, in this industry, in, um, in our farming and agriculture, that I suppose a lot of industries, you, you know, someone in the same field as you, you, you can be competing in that space. For Whereas in, in this farming, we seem to um, not want to compete. We're, we're more sharing here. So people are coming and sharing, you know, what's worked for them, but also some of the things that may not have worked. So at the end of the day, the more people we can get in here sharing their experiences, the, the faster we can all grow and, you know, help through adversity and all the challenges we face. With more than 10 years under their belt, Grant Sim says no-till farmers are now looking at diversifying their output. You know, generally in our cropping systems, where a lot of, like, winter sort of grasses like wheat and oats and, and winter broadleafs but looking in where we can add you know for challenging times we'd, we'd normally plant all our crops in a, in a certain window but now you know with safflower and, and maybe some summer type crops that we can add in for diversity and, and use that to increase our water holding capacity and um, you know and our soil health and function. U.S. soil health specialist Jay Fira says crop growers are universally moving away from conserving a degraded carbon-deficient resource and instead opting for regeneration. With the awareness that we've had on it in the, in the recent years, uh, recent years being last 
10, 15 years. I think we all realize that we have to make this change and we have to start taking a look at our cropping systems and our grazing systems from the viewpoint of how do I bring more carbon into these soils? And when we bring the carbon in, we brought food in. And then the soil biology responds build soil aggregates, transfers carbon into soil organic matter. We have these positive things happen in terms of soil resiliency. So wet years, dry years, our crops do better, our uh, grass production is better, and I think our um, vegetable and orchard production is better. And I think this has a lot to do with food security. I, I think universally we realize that we have to move away from conserving a degraded resource and we have to move into regeneration of our soils or rebuilding our soils and I, and I think that's where we really want to be. This is your second time to Australia. What are the big differences or similarities that you notice? I think what I'm seeing in my second visit it's um, I'm seeing more adoption of soil health principles and I think there's uh, more of them on the ground and I think that speaks well to uh, what's happening. And I think organizations like Vic No-Till are essential to make some of these things occur and occur much quicker. So I think uh, one of the primary things I see that's different than my previous visit is much more on the ground adaptation. We're here in Northern Victoria and the Riverina area. It is quite dry. Have you seen these kind of conditions in the US? Does it relate to a, or is it t similar to a particular state or region of the US that has come through a period like this? Yeah, we definitely have uh, dry areas within the U.S. Um, I think anytime when you have uh, large geographical areas like Australia or the U.S., you're going to have areas that are in normal precip. You're definitely going to have vast areas that are maybe in low precip. And I think these are, these are not so unusual, but I really think it speaks to why we need to re regenerate our soils and why we need to be more soil resistant in terms of drought and in terms of wet conditions. This resiliency goes both ways. The dry conditions are nothing so unusual about them. Nobody likes to go through them. But when we, are, when we have better carbon levels, we handle the dry conditions easier. That's US soil health specialist Dave, uh, Jay Fearer speaking there with Megan Ruth. Ten minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, the RSPCA says it's now backing the use of pain relief gel trisulfan for cutting the horns of young cattle. The topical anaesthetic was originally brought into the country to assist sheep producers with the controversial practice of mulesing, and its use is now spread into the cattle industry for dehorning calves. RSPCA senior scientific officer Melina Tenson told our reporter Eric Barker the anaesthetic gel is the most practical pain relief tool in the livestock industry. Trisulfan um, has been on the market for over 10 years now, and it was effectively the first pain relief product available to farmers that was practical to use on farm and actually did work in terms of providing pain relief. And the APVMA have now approved uh, trisulfan for disbudding or dehorning of calves, and that's, of course, a great thing because we want to see people using pain relief when carrying out these painful procedures. As far as pain relief products go for a procedure like this, um, is, is trisulfan the only one on the market at the moment that, that you approve? Well, farmers now also have access to an oral pain relief as well as an injectable pain relief product. 
in terms of best practice pain relief in this context of dehorning, using both that topical anaesthetic, in other words, trisulfan, in combination with an oral pain relief or an injectable is probably the best way to go from an animal welfare perspective. The process of dehorning is uh, can, can be quite controversial. I mean, what is the RSPCA's stance on, on dehorning in general? Well, dehorning is a very painful procedure and the RSPCA view is that these sort of painful procedures should be replaced by alternatives. In the case of dehorning, it's already possible to breed for polled animals. So gradually introducing polled size into the herd and reducing that number of calves that need to be dehorned, that's the way to go. And certainly if dehorning is necessary, then do it at the earliest possible age and do it using pain relief. Essentially breeding polled cattle or breeding the horns out of cattle would be a huge transformation in the the cattle industry. Is there anything that, that you're doing to, to work with the, the cattle industry on that front? Well, the um, the beef uh, sustainability framework is a good example of where, um, you know, dehorning and trying to increase the number of polled animals, particularly in northern Australia, is um, one of the objectives of that uh, sustainability framework. Um, and we're actively, actively involved in, in that initiative. We'd certainly encourage all cattle producers in northern Australia to go down the, the polled path, so to speak. Um, certainly what we're aiming for is in the long run, not to have to cut bits off animals at all. And if we can start by introducing polled animals, that would be great. Like Melina Tenson and the RSPCA, Al McDonald would like dehorning to leave the cattle industry altogether. His family owned one of Australia's largest cattle businesses and his late cousin Xander McDonald kicked off a trial of the gel about six years ago. Now, he says the company is using it for all its dehorning. Just in the results of the animals after they're dehorned, there's a noticeable difference there with calves that have been treated with it after they've been dehorned, they go straight back onto their mothers, they're not shaking their head or um, in any discomfort, they seem to be, uh, they recover a lot quicker is what we've found. Now Al McDonald talking to the RSPCA, um, they still encourage the, the Australian cattle industry to look at breeding out horns and breeding more polled cattle with no horns at all on them so this uh, procedure of dehorning didn't have to take place whatsoever. Where are you at with, with dehorning and, and having cattle that grow horns? Well I suppose in one way our, all the cattle we join around our southern properties are all uh, black Angus cross so they're black Angus bulls which have very little horn there's probably only oh, exact figure 10% of them that have any horn mostly they don't need any dehorning so that's a positive, but the majority of our breeding herd is still Brahmin, and it's like it's always been the thing with breeding the horns out of which I don't, I can't think of anyone that would want to have horns on as a um, as a choice. But it's it's when trying to breed one trait out, it's often at the detriment of some of the other traits that you're trying to get. So it's it's uh, difficult, and it's a slow process, I think, of um, of breeding it out. But I think everyone's on the same path as. That's, that's the ultimate, is to not have to do it at all. That's Grazier L. McDonald finishing that report from Eric Barker. Off to the livestock market, starting today at Shepparton with Nicole Varley. Afternoon, well, we had a much bigger yarding here at Shepparton. 1,800 exports and 500 trade cattle were penned. The exports consisted of a large contingency of mixed-weighted Frisian steers and around 1,100 cows. 
heavy steers and bullocks, the quality there was mixed. Cows came off the highs of the last sale. Grown steers remained firm. Competition increased on the certain lines of Frisian steers suitable for feedlotters. Trade cattle had large lines of store condition stock. Prices fell sharply on the very poor condition lines. Finished vealers were scarce. The best of the vealers made to 315 cents. Yearling steers to the trade, 286 to 310. Yearling heifer portion, 260 to 295 cents. The 500 to 600 kilo steers, three C3, C4s, 275 to 315, averaging around 305. 600 kilo plus steers and short supply, they reached 295 cents. Frisian steers, 198 to a top of 282 cents. Heavy beef cows, 214 to 254, with averaging around 245 for the C4 beef cows. Dairy cows, 170 to 226, averaging 202 for the D1s. There's Nicole Valley from Chabadon. Thanks, Nicole. Now to Ballarat and Graham Palmer. Good afternoon, everyone. 16,500 lambs drawn for Ballarat this week. Supply was steady following useful overnight rain. Quality rains from Plain to very good. The usual buying group attended and operated keenly in another strong showing. Heavy lamb sold to $10 a head deer and up to $15 a head deer on spots on quality. Trade lamb sold, to, sold from 5 to $10 a head deer. Lighter lambs eased a few dollars in places. Best of the heavy lamb sold to $276. Well-covered heavy trade weight sold from $195 to $225. Their average around 880 cents. It was about 4,000 sheep yarder that covered all weights and grades. Not all the, all the usual buyers attended or operated fully. Sheep have sold from around firm to $10 at easier in places. The trade weight three score lamb sold from 146 to 185. Their average is around 860. Heavier trade weight sold mostly from 195 to 225 to average around 880 cents. Medium weight sheep sold from 83 to 130. With the run of merino mutton averaging around 490 cents. Heavy hoggets were made to 165 and rams sold to $111. And Grand Pie McBabarat for MLA. Thanks, Graham. And now to Wodonga and Leanne Dax. Just over 1,200 cattle sold to the usual field of buyers. Quality was very mixed with secondary stock showing the effects of the cold, wintry conditions. Secondary cattle still trying to find a base rate here with heifer portion discounted at times. There were very few veal to quote, 285 to 314. Feeder steers were up 2 to 4 cents, 275 to 312. Trade steers were firm, 308 to 314. Trade heifers were unchanged, 245 to 311. Feeder heifers dropped 6 cents, 216 to 290. Grown steers and bullocks lacked the quality of last week, slipping 8 to 14 cents, making from 268 to 310. I'm Leanne Duck for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Now let's find out what's coming up on Statewide Drive with Nicole Javastic. Afternoon, Nicole. Hello, Nick. There you are. There I am. Back. Back. L- live. <laughs> Made it. Survived. Uncut. Yes. <laughs> Gippslanders are querying why Labor is parachuting in the former member for Brunswick. Jane Garrett to represent them in the state's upper house, despite a bid by the UFU to derail her return. The controversial former emergency services minister will continue her political career in Victoria's upper house after a factional deal was done yesterday. And Gippslanders are saying why the member for Brunswick for us. We'll have a chat about that this afternoon. And also, have you changed the way that you regard plastics, Nick? Uh, yes, I have. But I still, you know, I still forget to take bag, the reusable bags to the supermarket all the time. Do you? Yeah. So you're there at the supermarket making... 
Making I'm that guy. Are you yeah. <laughs> juggling stuff on the way out? Yes. Yeah. I have actually changed the way that I look at plastics now, and we're going to have a chat to Craig Rucastle, who's the host of War on Waste, which is returning tonight for a second series on ABC TV. Okay, that and plenty more on Statewide Drive from 3 o'clock here on ABC Radio Victoria. And for today, that is the Country Hour. It's one o'clock.